theme of this section that we see before us in Luke's Gospel is prayer. And right in the middle of it is this wonderful little parable or story that Jesus told. It's one of around 17 parables that are unique to Luke in his Gospel. Only Luke records this particular story. It is traditionally commonly called the parable of the friend at midnight. And it's obvious why it's called that. Verses 5 to 8. As the focus of the story, that which precipitates a crisis and leads to its resolution is the unexpected midnight visit of a traveler. However, if you look closely at the story with me, and I hope you've come prepared to think hard this evening, you'll discover, in fact, there are three friends in the story. Look again. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend. And he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me. I have nothing to set before him. There are three friends in the story. One, there is the friend on the journey, the friend with a need. Secondly, there is the friend who is the host, the friend with nothing to give. And thirdly, there is the friend in bread, who is the friend in bed, who is the friend with bread. I'll rephrase that. Thirdly, there is the friend in bed, who is the friend with bread. I knew I'd get that wrong. So you might ask, should we not then call it the parable of the three friends at midnight? But even that is a little misleading. It may suggest that the three people in the story share a mutual friendship like the three musketeers, one for all and all for one. But in fact, this is not the case in the parable. Uh, let me do something that I never did before in Charlotte Chapel, but once I got free, I, I did all these more innovative, wacky things. Uh, let me try and act this out, if I can, uh, with, with, a, with the help of one or two, a couple of people. Now, hmm. I will act as the host in the middle, all right? The guy who uh, has nothing to offer, right? And I need someone to be a friend on a journey. So Rodney, you can be the friend on the journey. Here's the bag. It's, not, it's got nothing in it, but don't worry about that. And then I need a friend who's a friend in bed who's looking sleepy. Oh. Um, I'm not going to embarrass anybody here. Uh, let's see, Rick, I know you well enough to say you can be the friend in bed, so... Here's the three loaves, and just close your eyes for a minute. Not for the whole sermon, just for a while. Okay, right. And here's this story, which takes place at midnight. A traveler comes to visit me in my home. Traveler, you may come and visit me. And I say, welcome, good to see you. Unfortunately, friend, I have nothing to offer you. I have no bread. But hang on a minute. I have a friend who can help us out. And so I go to my other friend and I say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on the journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Now this friend is in bed with his family, uh, but I shout long enough and loud enough and eventually he awakes and gives me what I need, the three loaves of bread, which are actually three bread rolls, but we'll stick with that for the moment. Now, I have these two friends. But notice something interesting as you look at the parable. I'm friendly with friend one, the traveler, and friend three, the friend in bed. But friend one has no friendship with friend three. Otherwise, when he arrived at my house and I said, I have nothing to offer, he could easily have said, don't worry, I'll try friend three and see if he can help out. 
the friend who visits at midnight, there are two, thank you very much, uh, Rodney, you can keep the mic. The, um, there are two visits at midnight. Holman Hunt, the uh, 19th century uh, artist, who was famous among Christians for his painting of Jesus, the light of the world, the one with Jesus knocking at the door of the heart, and uh, there's no knocker on the outside. You must know this. David, everybody, David's an art, art expert here. David Patterson, he'll tell you all about Holman Hunt and the pre-Raphaelites and those who are doing history of art in Edinburgh. Um, and his painting there is the painting of Rodney arriving, or Rodney's equivalent. He had a colleague, uh, John Everett uh, Millet, who painted the opposite of the second visit at midnight of getting the bread from the friend there and you can see the second etching there it's not, it's not very clear I couldn't find a better picture on the internet and maybe David you can find one for me for future occasions um, so I've begun to think a bit about this little story these stories Jesus told you know wonderful stories because there's so much insight and depth into them um, I started reading the Bible when I was a child my parents introduced me to the Bible I've told you before on many occasions that by the time I was about 12, I could recite 500 verses of the Bible by heart. And we got cash prizes in Sunday school. Um, and I was a rich young kid. Uh, and I've studied the Bible. I have a couple of degrees in theology. But the wonderful thing about the Bible, if you're a new Christian, is this is a remarkable book. Because you read it and you read it and you see fresh things in it that you haven't seen before so I want to share some of those things I looked at my records and saw the last time I spoke on this parable was here in Charlotte Chapel on the morning of somewhere in 2002 so if you were there then and thinking I've heard this all before you be the friend in bed but sleep quietly because I have a few extra things to say about it now what do we think about is is there any significance in the fact that there are three friends most commentators and uh, experts on Luke's gospel say, well, the three friends, it's, they're just added for dramatic effect to make the story more telling. Um, but surely you could have the same effect by excluding me and just having one friend visiting a friend at midnight and getting him out of bed. You could illustrate the same point. So is there any point in having the three friends in the story? What is the significance of the three friends? Think about that for a moment. And as I dug around a bit and did a bit more research, I found out that there were actually older commentators suggested that they are significant. Um, one Dutch Protestant theologian from 17th century, digging deep here, called Vitringa, suggests that the friend uh, on the journey represents the heathen world, the world of people outside of Christ. So the friend on the journey equals the people of the world. Uh, the host with nothing to offer represents the disciples or friends of Jesus who are taught they can only nourish the needy world with the bread of life. So the friend who is the host is the disciples of Jesus who can only meet their real needs with the bread of life from the one that they seek it from who is God himself, the friend in bed, represented by the friend in bed who is God. Now some of them go even further than this and I wouldn't want to go this far. Some suggest that the three loaves uh, that are mentioned in the story represent the three persons of the Trinity or the three gifts of the Spirit, faith, hope and love. I will not be going there, you'll be glad to know. It's stretching a bit. But I do think it's quite profitable for us to think for a moment about the significance of the three characters in the story, particularly in relation to the context. This section of Luke's Gospel, 1 to 13, 
it, it, the NIV gets it right. It's got a paragraph heading, which if, if you're a new Christian, uh, the bits at the top in italics are just added by the translators to help us give some, some subject heading. They've put Jesus' teaching on prayer, and basically it contains a prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer, verses 1 to 4. Then a parable, which we're going to focus on particularly, verses 5 to 8. And then what many people think is a poem that follows. Ask, seek, and knock, and it's kind of parallel. And if you back translate it, you can get a kind of rhythm to the story there. So what I want you to do is look with me at the parable and the three friends involved. And what I want us to think about is what we are meant to learn about prayer from this parable. All right? The parable and what it teaches is addressed to followers of Jesus. Look again at the text. He says, suppose one of you has a friend. You, you are the subject, the follower of Jesus. And what it's speaking is about is their relationship, if we are followers of Jesus, our relationship with these two friends. This one and that one. All right? So if you want a title, I want to suggest a different title. I'm going to call it, you'll see in the bulletin it's called this, The Man with Two Friends. And I want us to look at these two friends. There is the friend on a journey, who is the friend in need. And there is the friend in bed, who is the friend with bread. I'll get it right this time. And the challenge I want to leave with you, I'll come back to it right at the end, but stay with me as we come to it, hopefully. The challenge I want to leave with you is... Do you, do I, have these two friends? Do you, do I, have these two friends? So let's look at them in turn. We'll focus more on the second one, which is the real thrust of the passage. But let's start with the friend in need. Um, in 2001, uh, when I was here in the chapel, I was granted a sabbatical by the elders, which I was very grateful for. Uh, you're supposed to get one every seven years, but we're not legalists. So after 17 years of ministry, I got a sabbatical. And uh, I was very grateful for that. And I went down to Oxford to the Whitfield Institute, Christian Research Institute, and did some thinking and studying about some of the challenges facing the church in Britain in the 21st century. What are the challenges facing us today? And as you read the literature on this, one of the really interesting themes which comes out in all sorts of places in our Western, postmodern, post-Christian society is the motif, the, the theme of the journey. Uh, when I grew up as a Christian all those years ago, over, well, 60 years ago, when I, more than that actually, um, our big emphasis when we're growing up, and those of you my age will know this and you'll, 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 you, it'll resonate with you, is uh, the big theme was to emphasize that people are either in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. You were either saved or lost. You're sheep or goats. You're wise or foolish. You're wheat or tares. And our challenge was, therefore, to confront people with this reality and say, you need to change sides. Nowadays, you'll notice, if you, if you study carefully, there's a, there's a shift of emphasis. From what we might call crisis, uh, what I just spoke about, to process. People are often described today as being on a journey in which the task of the Christian or the evangelist is to find out where your friend is on the journey, to share why, where I am, and help them to move along in the right direction. Now, both approaches and both descriptions can be justified from Scripture. 
They are not mutually exclusive. I think it's important in today's postmodern age that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. For at some point, each of us needs to change direction. Or to use a biblical word, we need to repent. Uh, However, while this is so, it's certainly true that all of us and our friends, we are all on a journey in life. Indeed, in another parable, you remember the Lord Jesus Christ spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, uh, Jesus spoke about the fact that there are two roads in life. The broad road that leads to destruction, the narrow road that leads to life, and he said, strive to enter in the narrow road road that leads to life a few there are who find it so all of us all of our friends those we come into contact with those in your family who are not Christians or believers don't come to church those that you work with those that you you do your exercises with in the gym or whatever you do in your recreation all of them are on a journey and on that journey at some time or another there will be situations in which A person, your friend, your family member, will find himself or herself in need. That need may be material, to do with money, possessions, job, or lack of them. It may be social, to do with their work, or their career, or their family. It may be physical, to do with their health or well-being. It may be relational, to do with their family and their children. And underlying all these needs that we find ourselves in, that our friends find themselves in, are spiritual needs. Though they may not necessarily recognize and acknowledge them, they will see only the presenting issue. I'm out of a job. My partner's deserted me, whatever it might be. Uh, In his gospel, Matthew records uh, that when Jesus was going around in his ministry, very significantly in Matthew 9, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked at the great needy mass of people and he saw behind them that people are made for a shepherd. And without a shepherd, they're harassed or harassed, however you put the emphasis, and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. Significantly, the response of Jesus to that need focused on the need for workers to address the need of needy people, to go and share God's love with a needy world, and the priority of prayer, which we're going to come back to. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, ask, pray, beg therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. So all those we come into contact with, all the people that you will meet after this today or tomorrow morning at work are needy people. And even more importantly, there will be occasions when they seek your help in their need, providing that you're in a meaningful relationship with them, that you have a relationship with your friends on the journey in which they feel comfortable enough, confident enough to seek you for help. We have a mutual friendship, which means they turn to us and say, I've got a problem, I wonder if you can help me. The sobering question to ask ourselves, particularly those of us involved in Christian ministry, but not exclusively, those who spend our lives, a lot of our time in churches, do we have such friends? Do I have any, many non-Christian friends, not just acquaintances? However, notice something else from this story, which uh, 
when the friend on the journey turns up he turns up at midnight at the most unexpected and inconvenient time it's been suggested this was not unusual in Palestine at this time that people would travel late at night because it was hot during the day it's been pretty conclusively proven this is not the case and in this story no one is expecting the visitor to turn up at midnight rather the arrival at midnight was unusual and unexpected for as we see in the parable it is inconvenient and embarrassing for the host for he has nothing to set before his guest so the arrival of the friend at midnight creates a crisis for the host and if we can learn from the traveler on the journey that our friends will seek our help at times of crisis we can learn from his arrival at midnight that they will seek it at the most inappropriate time for us calling at midnight I've been involved in Christian ministry now for well over 40 years and there is an almost invariable rule of pastoral experience needy people always call at midnight sometimes literally and almost all figuratively I think when I was the senior pastor here in Charlotte Chapel, if I had a relatively light load one week, nobody called for help. The following week, when I'm preaching twice with a ladies' meeting, a prayer meeting, and a wedding, some crisis will arise. This is not a complaint, and certainly not a plea for you to avoid seeking pastors uh, for help. Rodney won't mind you ringing at midnight. Well, he may. It is just a fact of life. And the result is, when this happens, my resources are low. And in terms of my ability to meet the need of the needy person, it happens when I have nothing to set before them. A friend of mine has arrived at midnight. I have nothing to set before them. There's an interesting example of this in in the Gospels. Well, it's in all four Gospels. But particularly Mark brings this point out in Mark 6, uh, verses 30 to 44. Do you remember the 12 apostles are sent out by Jesus on their first mission and they have a wonderful time and they return to Jesus and they report all that's happened and Jesus says to them, You've, you know, Jesus says to them, you're exhausted, let's go and find a quiet place somewhere, you need a rest, you need a break. And so they go off, the 12 disciples and Jesus, on the other side of the lake secretly and the crowd see what's happening and they follow them and suddenly instead of having a rest they're confronted by a huge crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children and Jesus teaches them for the whole day because they're needy, desperately needy people. At the end of the day the disciples say it's evening time, look, send the people away to the local towns, they've nothing to eat. And Jesus then remarkably says to them, you give them something to eat. And the disciples say, we don't have anything. We're exhausted. We were exhausted before we started with this day. We have nothing to offer. Jesus says, how much have you got? And they say, well, you know the story. Five loaves and two fish. Five loaves, interesting. Five loaves, three loaves, anyway. And Jesus breaks them and multiplies them, feeds the people. And they're learning a lesson that at the point of greatest need when you have nothing to offer there is someone who has everything that you need the resources that are available to you now the phrase nothing to set before him shouldn't be taken literally every household of course like we do had the basic staples of life if nothing else you had salt which was also an essential but salt is useless in eastern culture without the one essential staple of life which is bread which is why bread and salt are the minimal minimum meal in the east indeed notice the connection here probable connection with what went before 
when Jesus taught his disciples to pray and he said when you pray say give us give us each day our daily bread in eastern homes a batch of bread was baked by the women first thing in the morning probably at dawn or even earlier just be thankful ladies that we now have supermarkets and shops and everything else and bread makers but anyway uh, what happened was the woman of the house would get up early in the morning and bake bread to last for the whole day but at midnight in this particular house the bread is all gone as they get into bed the husband says don't worry dear get up in the morning and make a fresh batch it was the unexpected visit of the friend at midnight which created a crisis and not just a crisis for the family but a crisis of a, a social disgrace were the needs of the traveler not to be met fortunately in this culture in a, in a Palestinian eastern culture hospitality was the collective responsibility of the whole village community and the man who has nothing to offer his friend knows that there is another home which has bread available and it's to the home of this second friend that he turns so if you're still with me let's turn to the second friend and the main teaching point of the parable the friend with bread now there are two different ways of understanding this parable all right i said you i wanted you to think so just are you all still here just nod your heads you're looking a bit blotto some of you okay there are two different ways of understanding this parable the first and most common is this is a lesson about human persistence in asking in prayer human persistence in asking in prayer but there is another way of looking at it which I want to come to secondly that it's a lesson about divine willingness in answering prayer now we need to look closely at the text to see where this is going let's look at each in turn uh, the first and most probably most commonly un understood understanding of this is that this is a lesson about human persistence in asking in prayer it runs like this the man with no bread goes to the home of his friend where he knows bread is available unfortunately the owner of the house is already asleep in bed with his family people slept in one room houses I saw this myself when I lived in the Indian subcontinent people would all sleep on sleeping mats in one room with the door with a big iron bar across the door for security and uh, to keep out intruders but undeterred the man who needs bread stands outside the door and says or probably shouts he may well not have knocked which would have aroused alarm at this hour now the man who's in bed would obviously prefer to stay there rather than the inconvenience of waking everybody up unlocking the door but he accedes to the request and gets up and gives him the bread not because the man is his friend but because he persists in making his request and the only way of shutting him up and getting back to sleep is to give him what he's asking for so it's the kind of Bob Dylan thing you know not, not knocking at heaven's door alright it was also covered by guns and roses as well but you few people know that term. okay uh, so on this understanding of the parable this is a lesson about human persistence in asking in prayer in which a friend in need keeps on making his request until the friend in bed gets up and gives him what he wants and the focus of the parable therefore is on the person making the request and the lesson is persistence in prayer and the conclusion is this so how much more will your father in heaven answer the prayers of those who go on asking go on seeking go on knocking now while it is true that we must persist in prayer 
And Luke records another parable, another unique parable in chapter 18 about a, a widow and an unjust judge who kept pestering him until she got justice. That's about persistence in prayer. It is by no means certain that this is the lesson that our Lord is teaching us here in this little parable. Or that the focus is on the one making the request. Rather, there is another way of understanding this parable which shifts the focus from the man making the request to the man granting it, from our persistence in asking in prayer to the second interpretation that this is a lesson about divine willingness in answering prayer. And let me tell you how I come to this conclusion, which I think is the right one, the correct way to understand the parable and apply it to ourselves. For when we come to the subject of prayer... The most important thing we need to be assured of is that God will answer. If that is not certain, then all our persistence is in vain. Think of an Old Testament example. There's Elijah on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings chapter 18. 450 prophets of Baal, pleading with their God, Baal and Ashtaroth and all these other ones that they worshipped, to bring down fire and destroy this sacrifice. They beat on about it for hours and hours. They shout, they scream, they cut themselves. The blood runs from their bodies, but there is no answer from heaven. Persistence isn't the answer. If God doesn't answer. No, the important thing to know is that when we pray, we can be assured that God will answer. And the key to understanding the parable is to appreciate, as I've touched on several times already, the cultural background of this particular parable, because parables are stories that are based in a culture that is not our own. Uh, I've recommended this book before, but I'll recommend it again. If you want a book that stimulates you and gets you thinking about passages you thought you understood, Kenneth Bailey, who spent most of his life in the Far East, speaks all the Semitic languages and Greek and other languages as well, has got two books on the parables, Poet and Peasant and Through Peasant Eyes, uh, and uh, you can get them both on Amazon for about nine, ten pounds. Uh, and he's very helpful in this respect. What he points out is that one of the devices Jesus uses in his teaching is what's called the rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question you ask where you know what the answer is going to be. All right? Uh, let, let me give you one, a Scottish one, all right? Suppose one of you is walking down Princess Street and you see a wallet lying on the ground. Would you just leave it there and walk on? That's a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. The obvious answer is, no, of course not. You'd pick it up and, well, then the other bit is kind of not so obvious. <laughs> all right. Oh, take another parable of Jesus, another wonderful parable. This one's in, uh, again in Luke. It says, Jesus says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep till he finds it? Now, the obvious answer is not so obvious in our culture. We might say, well, I think you should settle for a 1% loss and make sure the other 99 are safe. But in a Palestinian context, the answer is always emphatically, yes, of course, the shepherd will leave the 99 and seek the lost sheep. And this is just what happens in the parable. Now, come to the parable in Luke 5, uh, Luke 11, verses 5 to 8. It has a similar device. Uh, let me sort of rephrase it so you get the idea. It's a rhetorical question. Suppose one of you has a friend who visits you at midnight and you have no bread to give him, so you go to a neighbor to ask for some. Would he say, don't bother me for the door is locked and my children are in bed with me so I can't get up and give you anything? 
Now, what is the obvious answer? The obvious answer in our culture is, yes, I can imagine him saying that, don't bother me. I might say that. Or maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. But in an Eastern culture, the answer is absolutely certain. The hearers of Jesus would immediately respond and say, no, of course he wouldn't say that. For such a thing is unthinkable in Eastern hospitality. Codes of hospitality, in which the whole village acts as host. Instead, the man would rouse himself out of bed and accede to the request. And the reason he does so is, is comes his key verse in verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, the key to understanding why the request is granted lies in the phrase, the man's boldness. First of all, you need to know who is the man. In the original Greek, this sounds technical, but you, you just need to know this, all right, not to blind you with science. In the original language, the man is not there. In the original language, it says, because of his boldness. And the NIV translators have decided that the man in question is the man who is knocking on the door seeking help. So they've put in the man's boldness. The second question is, what does the word boldness mean? If you've got a Bible there, you'll see it says... Um, in fact, the NIV keeps switching around depending on which version you've got. The later editions are the early ones. It either says boldness with a footnote that says persistence or persistence with a footnote that says boldness, all right? Um, older versions, if you've got the King James Version, say importunity, which is not a word I use very often, I must say. Uh, the word nearly always has a negative connotation. It's the idea of shamelessness. The New English Bible translates it, the very shamelessness of his request. That he's, not, he's not at all embarrassed to do this. will make him get up and give him all he needs. So the person making the request does so shamelessly without embarrassment until the man grants the request and a negative word is then given a positive spin and translated as persistence or boldness. However, Bailey suggests that the word refers not to the man making the request, his boldness, his whatever the word means I'll come to it in a minute but the man answering it uh, many cultures still today where we lived in, in certainly in Africa uh, when we were in Nigeria and in Pakistan and India are shame cultures what are called shame cultures they're cultures in which certain behavior is normative in, in, a, in a culture in a society and if you do something different you shame the whole community we live in an individualistic society in the West where you can do all sorts of wacky things that are not necessarily outside the pale. But these societies are much more cohesive. Certain behavior is accepted as appropriate. And the person who defies these norms brings shame upon the whole community as well as himself. So Bailey comments, listen carefully. If the sleeper refused the request of anything as humble as a loaf of bread, the host would continue on his rounds, cursing the stinginess of the sleeper who would not get up to fulfill this trifling request. The story would be all over the village by the next morning. The sleeper would be met by cries of shame everywhere he went. Because of his desire for avoidance of shame, he will arise and grant the borrower whatever he wants. Now, the revised... NIV, you know I've been a Bible translator so I read these things, the, the new NIV just come out this year uh, translates it as follows I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, 
he will surely get up and give you as much as he need but it gives an alternative footnote which gives the opposite meaning which I think is the right one here's what it says uh, at the bottom which indicates it's a lesson about divine willingness in answering prayer uh, I tell you even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship yet to preserve his good name he will surely get up and give you what you want to preserve his good name so the parable is about a sleeping neighbor who is concerned for the honor of his name and his integrity and therefore he grants the host's request and not just that he will give you everything you need not just a minimal three loaves here take six or whatever and the conclusion is how much more will your father in heaven honor his name and character by granting our requests when we come to God in prayer we can be assured that he will answer because of the honor of his name and character he will not turn away our requests the parable then is not essentially about our persistence in prayer important though that is and is taught elsewhere but in God's faithfulness to his character it is meant to give us assurance in prayer and the verses which follow make the point so says Jesus here's the conclusion ask and it will be given you seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives he who seeks finds to him who knocks the door will be opened we come to a God who is not just a friend but a father not just a friend but a father it's an argument from the lesser to the greater if a friend does this for the honor of his name how much more will a father do it and then it's not just a human father but a heavenly father look what he says at the end which of you fathers human fathers inverted commas brackets if your son asks for a fish will give him a snake instead or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion if you then you human fathers though you are evil in other words you're not perfect by any means know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your brackets perfect father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him in effect Jesus says to his audience and to us if we're his followers if we're the friend in the story if you are confident of having your needs met without question when you go to such a neighbor in the night how much more can you rest assured when you take your requests to a loving father when we pray God will answer the parable tells us we can be absolutely sure of this fact for God's character his honor and his reputation depend on it he's not one of those capricious deities that they have in other religions where you're not quite sure what he's going to do who answers the requests of his supplicants in an arbitrary and unpredictable manner he is always true to his word always true to his promises so ask seek knock you don't need to try rousing him from his sleep like the prophets of Baal shouting to gain his attention for as St. Augustine beautifully comments the Lord is this is a lovely quote is the one who both is sleepless and when we sleep rouses us to pray isn't that lovely the Lord is the one who both is sleepless and when we sleep rouses us to pray now almost at the conclusion let's come back to where we began 
I hope you're still with me. You might need to listen to this again and download it. Okay, so the man with two friends. The friend on the journey was the friend in need and the friend in bed who's the friend with bread. And the challenge I wanted to leave with you as I leave with myself is, do you have these two friends? Do I have these two friends? All of us have friends in need. But none of us have the resources to meet their real needs, their spiritual needs. The only one who can meet their needs is God, the other friend who is the Father. But you can only avail yourself of these resources if He is your Father. So here are two important questions in the real conclusion. Question one, is God your Father? Do you know Him as your Heavenly Father? Can you use that intimate term that Jesus taught his disciples when you pray, he said, quite revolutionary for his Jewish audience to say, when you pray, use that little Aramaic word that children use with their parents. When you pray, say, Abba, Father. Are you a member of the family? Is God your Father? He can only be your Father if you receive his Son as your Savior. In his gospel, John records in the opening chapter about Jesus. He was in the world. Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And when you become a Christian... God by his spirit comes to live within you and to make you by nature his child. You're born again of the spirit of God. His spirit witnesses with our spirits, as Paul in Romans 8, that we are indeed the children of God. You pray to God, he is your father. Now, do you know that intimacy with God? Is he your father? That's the first question. That's the crucial question upon which everything else hangs. All right, but here's the second question to all of you nodding your heads and say, by God's grace, yes, I am a child of God. Here's the second question. If God is your father, then a second important question follows. And the second important question is this. Is prayer your priority? Is prayer your priority? If he is our father in heaven, then when we ask, Jesus says he will give. Interestingly, in Matthew's account of this, he says he will give good gifts to those who ask him. Luke says he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. What do we need if we're going to meet the needs of our friends, our needy friends, that we're going to meet tomorrow morning? Someone at work says, you'll never guess. I've had a terrible tragedy in my family. I don't know what to do. How are you going to meet that friend's need? You'll never meet it out of your own resources. As long as you think you've got enough resources to cope with it, you will never meet anybody's real need. It's only when you realize the poverty I have nothing to set before you. You turn to God and say, Lord, I need your Holy Spirit to enable me to minister and provide bread for my needy friend, to give what they really need. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses, says Jesus. Acts 1, verse 8. You'll be my witnesses. 
we need the Holy Spirit now the proof of the pudding is in the eating see if as a church we're going to meet the needs of the needy people of Edinburgh then we'll only meet them as we seek God for the resources that we need and therefore as a church our priority will not be preaching important though it is it will be prayer because we'll be crying out to God for the help that we need and as we do so we can be absolutely sure that he will give us what we need so that we can meet the needs of other people because all of us are friends with two friends if we're believers a friend in need and a friend with bread who is our father in heaven let's pray together as we conclude if this evening you're not sure that God is your heavenly father you don't know that intimate relationship with him then this evening maybe God is speaking to you and challenging you to turn from your own self-reliance thinking you can meet your own needs and coming with nothing in your hand with the hymn writer we say nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling Lord we have nothing to offer but you have everything that we need so this evening turn from your self-reliance and put your trust in Jesus Christ God promises he will give you his spirit make you his child Lord thank you for the miracle of new birth thank you that you are our heavenly father forgive us that so often we think we can cope with all the situations of life unless they're really big and then we turn to you like the fire brigade when the house is on fire Lord help us to know daily that we need daily bread give us each day our daily bread so that we might feed the needy world of needy people around us and may prayer be our priority as individuals and as a church Lord write your word on our hearts thank you that we have the assurance that when we ask we will receive when we seek we'll find when we knock the door will be opened may we prove it in increasing measure in the days that lie ahead and we ask it in Jesus name and for your glory Amen